the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. City WLCC Brandon. Faith Talk Tampa. Online at Let's Talk Or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey. The following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre recorded. We're told to follow in his steps. This is a picture. Follow literally means to take the same road as someone else has taken, to go down that path that they've taken. It's the picture of if you've ever walked in the snow or mud and you make footprints and your child follows you and wants to put his footprint right where daddy or mommy has put their footprint. That's what this means. It means that Jesus has walked a road and we're to walk down that road. And this road, according to some, it's this way, but not according to the Bible. It's not a glamorous road. It's not a road of being in the spotlight or a road of a popularity contest but it's a road that Roy Hessian says is the Calvary road. For all of us, if we're really committed to Christ, at times it's a lonely road, and at times it's a road of suffering, and it eventually leads to Calvary, and that's where we ought to be. Oftentimes, people have a feeling that if they follow Jesus Christ, everything will be, hmm, shall we say, rosy? Well, to a certain extent, that is true. On this earth, even though we may face persecution and trials, we have the peace of God. Of course, in the next life, rosy will not come close to describing how wonderful our eternal existence with Christ will be. Welcome to our final session in First Peter on Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff. There is a part of me that is sad to see this series ending, yet I have some excitement to see what our next series will be. Today, Pastor Steve will teach us more of what our example is and how we can apply that to our own lives. So let's get into today's program. The Christian life is not all fun. You hear that so much, and I mentioned this before. If we could have that man who was stung to death by wasps, I'm sure he would not say the Christian life is fun. The people who had their hands burnt and yet clapped and said, Jesus only, Jesus only. I'm sure they would say the Christian life is not fun, but it's one of victory. It's one of strength. It's one of resting in God's sovereignty. It's one of suffering and yet knowing the peace of God. We're called to this life. But Peter says, not only is it your calling, I look at the rest of verse 21, For you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Not only is it our calling, but this verse tells us that Christ suffered for us and has left us an example to follow. Jesus is the ultimate example. And what a wonderful illustration we have. How did he handle it? It's interesting in studying this word example. It's an interesting word. Peter must have gone back in his mind to his boyhood days because this word comes out of that. It was used by the Greeks to literally mean writing under. That's the literal translation. It means to write under. And it was used of the Greeks of words given to children to copy. They were given a word, 
And that was their example, and they were to copy that. Sometimes this word is used as if what we do, take tracing paper and put it over letters or a picture, and we copy over it. We do that so that we might have a replica of the original. And what God is saying is that Christ has suffered for us, leaving us an example that he might use suffering to conform us to the very image of Christ. That God has put us over Christ, and we're being traced over him, and the finished product is the person of Christ. Those Christ-like attitudes that God is developing in us and conforming us in every detail to the Lord Jesus. That's what example means. We're tracing paper, and he wants the image of Christ traced on us. And when there's temptation to complain and fret over why we're in this situation, we need to remember God's conforming us, and this is the only way it can be done. It has to be this way. He's tracing us. He's using us as tracing paper to make a copy of Jesus. That's encouraging. That's why the Bible says all things work together for good. Because the next verse says that whom he predestined, he's conforming to the image of Christ. That's why all things work together for good. We're told to follow in his steps. This is a picture. Follow literally means to take the same road as someone else has taken, to go down that path that they've taken. It's the picture of if you've ever walked in the snow or mud and you make footprints and your child follows you and wants to put his footprint right where daddy or mommy has put their footprint. That's what this means. It means that Jesus has walked a road and we're to walk down that road. And this road, according to some, it's this way, but not according to the Bible. It's not a glamorous road. It's not a road of being in the spotlight or a road of a popularity contest, but it's a road that Roy Hessian says is the Calvary road. For all of us, if we're really committed to Christ, at times it's a lonely road, and at times it's a road of suffering, and it eventually leads to Calvary, and that's where we ought to be. Speaking from personal experience, Peter knew what it was like to want Christ without suffering. And I want you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 22, because Peter knew what it was like to want the kingdom and want the blessings and want the fun and want the power and the glory without the suffering. Luke chapter 22 tells us about this. Peter was bold and said to Jesus, I'll not deny thee, I'll stick by you, I'll be with you. And Jesus knew that he couldn't keep that promise. And here's what happened in Luke 22:54 and following. And having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. He wasn't following close. He wasn't walking down that road. And after they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting amongst them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, This man was with him too. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I don't know him. And a little later, another saw him and said, You are one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while I was still speaking, a cock crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him before a cock crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Peter knew what it was like not to follow Christ. Remember, it was Peter who said, Lord, you'll never go to the cross. Why? Because he wanted the kingdom without the suffering. He wanted the power and the glory and really didn't want the Calvary road, which is a road of suffering. I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised if when Peter wrote this, he wept over it. And the original manuscripts may be tear-stained concerning this. But how did Jesus handle suffering? How are we to? Because the way Jesus did it, that's our example. Those are the footprints that we're to put our feet in. 
That's the path we're to walk down. The path the Savior took is our path. Whether you want it or not, that's reality. How did he do it? Back to 1 Peter, verse 22. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Peter is paraphrasing Isaiah 53, and he states, Christ was sinless, perfect. That was attested to by others who didn't even particularly like him. Pilate's wife said that she called Christ a righteous man. Pilate himself said, I find this man innocent. I can't find any evil in him. He was the spotless lamb. That's what John said. He was perfect. He didn't have to suffer in the sense for his own sins. He suffered for us. But I want you to see something. Why do you think it says, nor was any deceit found in his mouth? Let me share this with you. I believe that it's there for this reason. In James 3, verse 2, we read, For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. In other words, what we say proves that we're sinners. Nobody here can perfectly control his tongue. And what comes out of your tongue proves what's in your heart, because Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And what Peter is saying is that nor was any deceit found in his mouth. In other words, this is a proof beyond the shadow of a doubt that there was no sin in Christ because nothing came out of his mouth that would demonstrate there was sin in his heart. You see? That's the proof of it. Who committed no sin, and how do we know it? He never said anything wrong, which proves he had a heart that was perfect, proves that he was the perfect son of God. Christ suffered and didn't deserve it. When you think nobody knows how you feel, he does. When you get persecuted and you're not wrong, he understands. We don't have a high priest who can't be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. But notice verse 23. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. One of the most powerful verses in all of the Bible. He didn't revile in return. And what does revile mean? It doesn't mean just to rebuke. When someone reviles you, it's not just to rebuke, it's to sharply bite you in a symbolic way. Hope nobody grabs a hold of anyone's leg or something. John Calvin said this, it's to wound a man with an accursed sting. It's not just a rebuke, there's contempt, bitterness, spite behind it. And the Bible says that when Jesus experienced this, he didn't get bitter, he didn't bite back, he didn't sting with curses. You know what he did? He prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He could have said, I suppose, in our speculation, he could have said, wait until the judgment. Wait until you stand before the Father. Then we'll see what happens. But he didn't. He didn't bite back. He didn't utter any sharp threats. He didn't do anything in return. And I want us to turn to Matthew chapter 27 because that's really the background of this, the sufferings of Christ. Matthew chapter 27 it's throughout the Gospels, but I think this is the most vivid portrait of his sufferings, beginning at verse 27 through 31. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. What a sight that must have been. What a heartbreaking sight for God the Father. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they kneeled down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him in the head. And after 
they had mocked him. They took his robe off and put his garments on him, and they led him away to crucify him. And there's so much more, if you study the Gospels, of all that Jesus endured, how they whipped him and beat him and scourged him and mocked him and laughed at him and spit in his face and punched him in the face. And Peter said, when he was threatened, he uttered no threats. While he suffered, he didn't get bitter. He didn't fight back. He uttered no threats. He didn't retaliate. He never looked for vengeance. He never tried to defend himself. You know, the Bible says vengeance is God's. And when you're persecuted by the world or others, vengeance is God's, not ours. He never tried to defend himself. And the thing of it is, and you can, you can study the trial of Christ, there wasn't any defense on his part because when you decide to defend yourself, you're always a loser. You always lower yourself to defend yourself. I think of Nehemiah, who really followed in the pattern of Jesus. Nehemiah was building the wall at Jerusalem. And he had unsaved and unbelievers come around and taunt him and say, come on down and all this kind of thing and mock him. And Nehemiah, and I'll paraphrase what he said. He said basically this, I'm building a wall. I'm building a city. I can't come down and play silly games of threats and accusations. He said, look, Chuck Swindoll's book says, just hand me another brick. I'm just busy. I'm building a wall. I can't play silly games. And Jesus' attitude was, I can't lower myself. I can't answer threats. I'm not going to retaliate. And that's the way everyone is to be. He didn't respond in bitterness at the cross. Before Herod, he was silent. And Herod, the Bible says, was amazed, astonished. The Bible says in Isaiah 53, as a lamb that was quiet, silent as a lamb, led to the slaughter so that he opened not his mouth. He didn't have to get back at anybody. Why? This is it. Why? Look at the rest of this verse. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. You see, you let God be your defense when the world persecutes you, when the world slanders you. You let God be your defense. Because why? Because God is the righteous judge. And God knows the heart. And nobody else does. And God knows if a person is guilty, if the accusations are right and wrong. He let God be your defense. He entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. He trusted the sovereign God who knew all about it and was taking care of everything. He knows when you've been wronged. He knows when you've suffered unjustly. And God takes care of it. And that's the pattern of how Christ handled it. It's very simple. It isn't complex. It's profound simplicity. But there's another point to this passage. And that's the purpose of Christ's suffering. God doesn't want us just thinking that all that's involved in the death of Christ is an example, as so many liberal theologians think. It's just an example of love. That's not all it is. And Peter wouldn't want to leave us with that impression. So he's going to explain about the cross, that the cross was not just our example, though it is. The cross is also our salvation. It's the basis for our salvation. Verse 24, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. He bore our sins on the cross. He who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5 says, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. There's an illustration we give in Evangelism Explosion for those in EE. They'll probably be scrutinizing me as I give this illustration and seeing if I do it right. The illustration goes something like this. Let's say that this small book represents all the sins in your life. And in my life, and in here is recorded everything that's ever gone wrong in the sense of sin in our life, all the things that we've done, the greed, the bitterness, the lust, the envy, the pride, all these things are in here. And let's say my right hand represents us, each one of us individually. 
This weight of sin is upon us. This guilt is on us. It's a burden. It's a load. And up here in heaven in glory is Jesus Christ who is God. And what's separating us, keeping us from entering into at least the capability of entering into a perfect relationship with God who's in heaven is our sin. But here's what happened when Christ came to earth. The Bible says, though all we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the sin of us all. And now we're free, because the sin is no longer on us, it's on the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we're free to enter into that perfect relationship with God who's in heaven. And that's what Peter is saying here, that he bore our sins. The burden was placed on him. The word bore is used of describing a man bearing a sacrifice up to God, but involved in that word is also the idea of a person stooping low and stooping under a great weight, like Atlas. We see the picture of Atlas holding up the world. That's the picture of bore. The burden was placed on him, and that's what Peter said happened. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Your Bibles may say the tree means the cross made out of wood that was taken from a tree. The Bible says, the Old Testament, cursed is every one that hangs on a tree. And in Galatians it says that. But he was innocent. He didn't have to die. What's the point? He suffered unjustly. He was the perfect spotless lamb of God. And when you suffer unjustly, realized he did too. For you. And you can suffer for him. That's the point. But it goes on to say that we might die to sin and live to righteousness we're dead, as we said this morning, to the law and the effects of sin on us. Now we're free to live a righteous life, free to obey God. That's the point of that. For by his wounds you are healed. This is a famous verse that many people use to say that healing is in the atonement. Maybe you've heard that. This is a verse that's used by some to say that when you're sick, something must be wrong with you. Because in the atonement, when Jesus died, he took all of our sins and our illnesses, and we should never have sickness. I want to show you something that proves that that is not talking about that. I want you to turn, and I'm really jumping ahead of what I wanted to say, but I'll first cover this. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 8. This is used so often, and it's a guilt trip by some. The charismatics use this a lot. Others use this. Matthew chapter 8. This is the other verse that they get this from. And I want to show you that it is impossible that this is what it means. In Matthew 8, verse 17, the context is Jesus has done some healing. And what they say is this, Matthew writes, in order that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, he himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Now this is the verse, along with 1 Peter, that they used to support the argument that in the atonement, the Lord Jesus Christ took away all of our illnesses, that upon him was laid our sickness as well as our sin. Notice something here. It says it was fulfilled. Christ had not died at this point. It was fulfilled in his life, not in his death. And if you examine closely Isaiah 53, you'll see the first part of Isaiah 53 is dealing with the life of Christ, not the death of Christ. The last part deals with his death. This is talking about his life. It is fulfilled in his life while on earth. He did take upon himself our illnesses, our infirmities. He did cure diseases, and he can cure it today, and he does. But you cannot use this verse or any other verse to support that while he was on the cross, he took anything more than our sins. And another thing to validate that, it is true you can use the word healing in a spiritual sense or in a physical sense, but the context bears it out. As you look at verse 25, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and bishop or guardian of your souls. 
the context bears it out. This is not physical healing. It is spiritual healing. So we just want to clear that up. That's kind of a sidelight. But I want to read something concerning the term, by his stripes you are healed. And I want to read from that Greek scholar, Kenneth Wiest, who says, the word stripes in the Greek presents a picture of our Lord's lacerated back after the scourging he endured at the hands of the Roman soldier. The Romans used a scourge of cords or throngs to which later was attached pieces of lead or brass or small sharp pointed bones. Criminals condemned to crucifixion were ordinarily scourged before being executed. The victim was stripped to the waist and bound in a stooping position with the hands behind the back to a post or pillar. The suffering under the lash was intense. The body was frightfully lacerated. The Christian martyrs at Smyrna around A.D. 155 were so torn by the scourges that their veins were laid bare, and the inner muscles and sinews and even the bowels were exposed. The Greek word translated stripes refers to the bloody whale trickling with blood that arises under a blow. The word is singular, not plural. Peter remembers the body of our Lord after the scourging, the flesh so dreadfully mangled, that the disfigured form appeared in his eyes as one single bruise. That's the purpose, that he went to the cross for us. By his stripes we're healed, we're brought to God, we're made whole. As sheep that are dumb and don't know what's best for us, we have strayed from God, and Jesus Christ died that we might come to God. It's interesting because if you look back in 1 Peter verse 12, it says, keeping your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. If you take the whole context in, what Peter is saying is, by Christ's suffering, we have come to know God. It was impossible before. And by Christian suffering and responding properly, others can come to know Christ. Because as you suffer and as the world looks at that, they're going to realize that what you have is reality. You have something that's real. That in the midst of trials and persecutions and suffering and temptations, you've got something that would withstand all of those things. You know Christ. And as you are persecuted and suffer and you stand in submission to God and in humility without having to defend yourself and grow bitter and attack, others can come to Christ. Now, how he pictures this, as we said in verse 25, you're continually straying like sheep, but now you've returned. The context is slaves who have been suffering at the hands of cruel masters, but now have Jesus as their shepherd and their overseer, one who cares for them. If their masters on earth treat them poorly, the righteous judge and Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, will take care of his own so that they can cast their burdens on him. First Peter 5 tells us that. So what is Peter saying? Christ is our example on how to suffer. He's the one who takes care of us for salvation and unjust suffering. So let this be a word of encouragement to you that when you go through things, Jesus is the pattern. You're not to retaliate. You're to love, Jesus said, when people hate you. And the world does. You love them. You don't utter threats back. And remember, the cross is what it's all about. The cross gives us salvation and it points us in the direction of how to handle suffering. Let's pray. Our Father, we want to be mindful of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't want to just read this and not obey it. All of us know what it's like to go through rough times, trials. We pray that you'll help us in our hearts and in our spirits to be submissive to you, to entrust our souls into a righteous God who knows the end from the beginning, knows the truth, knows the hearts, 
And we thank you for each person here because at one time or other in their lives, they have gone through it and will go through it and maybe going through it now to be accused unjustly. We pray for encouragement for them. We pray for grace. We pray that the word of God might be their pattern. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, that not only did he die on the cross to take away our sins and our burden and guilt put on him, but I thank you that in the process he gave us an example of how to handle suffering. Father, I'm very grateful for that, and I'm grateful for the brothers and sisters here who have that as an illustration too. May this week you help us to live that out if we're persecuted. Thank you for those who have come tonight. Thank you for the prayer meeting. We just entrust this church and ourselves into your safekeeping, for it's your church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Christ is our example on how to suffer. He's the one who takes care of us for our salvation and our unjust suffering. So let this be a word of encouragement to you, that when you go through unjust situations, Jesus is the pattern. I appreciated Pastor Steve's statement where he said, the cross is what it's all about. Now that we have concluded this series, I feel as if I've been to an all-you-can-eat buffet, and I had a lot to eat. Pastor Steve Kreloff of the Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida, will be with us again as we begin a new series on Verse by Verse. What is it? You'll have to find out. But if you would like to go back and review any parts of this series from 1 Peter, please go to versebyverseradio.org and click the archives link. And now, on to our new series on the next Verse by Verse program. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.